Today, we will speak about one very common and ordinary thing which has supreme benefit for the purpose, supreme benefit for, for realizing Nibbana. In Thai, this is called Kwam Sangha. In Bali, it is called Viveka. And in English, we can call it solitude. The meaning of we wake up or solitude puts more emphasis on the quality of loneliness or aloneness rather than singleness because even if one is just single we don't know if this will be calm and peaceful so we emphasize the quality of aloneness the meaning of of solitude can be used both in ordinarily ordinary worldly matters as well as for the highest spiritual purpose there's a a verse that goes something like solitude is the resting place for the suffering soul and the meaning of this can be applied both on the ordinary level of home and family and work as well as on the highest spiritual level the roots of solitude are very deep they um, are as they go so deep as to be apparent in animals each animal has times when it needs to be alone we can see this in all the animals we have around here at Suanmok and then wild animals in the forest have an even greater need for solitude to be alone so this is a principle that is very basic it's and it's an instinctual need of living things even ordinary people need this this solitude there are times when we want to be just left alone even the people we love we we don't want them to come and and get involved with us we just want to be left on our own because we feel even on the instinctual level that unless we have some solitude we'll miss out on on certain very important things that if we're always caught up and involved with other people that it'll be too troubling disturbing too busy for us so if we look at solitude in these various ways we'll see that it's one thing that we can't do without so we should appreciate its importance and value in the pali language this word is viveka which comes from the part from eka which means 
one or single, and we, which means utmost or highest. And so we wake up means utmost singleness, utmost oneness, utmost solitude. Actually, the word solitude doesn't quite capture the entire meaning, but utmost or supreme singleness is what we mean by we wake up. We wake up can be understood on three primary levels. The first is the physical or material level regarding our bodies. The second is the mental level, which is mental solitude. And then the third is spiritual or so spiritual solitude. We have these three three levels for understanding the meaning of we wake up. The difference between the three is that when there's nothing disturbing us physically, when there's nothing disturbing the body, this we call physical we wake up, physical solitude. When none of the hindrances or obstructions of the mind are bothering us or bothering the mind, we call that mental solitude. And when none of the objects of attachment are disturbing our, our mindfulness and wisdom, then this is what we call spiritual solitude. When we live in a simple way, then we will be very much, we will have a great deal of physical solitude. In the Pali language, this is called Dutanga, which are certain fundamental practices for living in a very simple, uncomplicated way. When we have Dutanga, when we follow Dutanga practices and keep sila or moral teachings, when we keep these in a careful, relaxed way, then we have a very high degree of physical aloneness, where we're physically we're undisturbed because life is, is uncomplicated. We don't have to worry about things. If we if we live plainly, then it's very easy to find physical solitude. But if we live luxuriously, it's very, very difficult to find physical solitude. As for mental solitude, what is called jitta, we wake up, when these various kinds of disturbing moods and thoughts no longer hassle us, then we have mental solitude. 
There are the five nivarana or hindrances. These are things that get in the mind's way, that obstruct or prevent the mind from from being in its ordinary, its natural, pure, and happy state. These are gamachanta, sensuality or sensuous desire, hayabata, ill will, aversion, tinamita, which is a dullness, a lazy sloppiness of mind, utacha kukucha, which is agitation, um, a scatteredness of mind, and then wichikicha, which is doubt. When any, when none of these five, when all five of these have been abandoned, or when they are unable to arise, or if just naturally they don't arise, then the mind is said to have solitude, then there is mental solitude. One ought to recognize that all five of these are our ordinary possessions in daily life. These are things that are coming up throughout our ordinary existence all the time. So we should see when <clears throat> life goes in a positive way, then we end up falling into sensuality, into sensual desire. If life goes in a negative way, then the result is aversion, ill will, anger, hatred, where we don't like things and we even want to get rid of them, destroy them, kill them. And when life is just kind of going on and it's not clearly positive or negative, then various forms of confusion and delusion arise. And so we end up with dullness of mind or an agitated mind. Or, or doubt. These are happening all the time. Maybe not constantly, but over and over again in our ordinary lives. And they prevent us from having the peace and quiet of mental solitude. If, however, you're successful in developing samadhi, samadhi, the collected, calm, clear mind, if you can develop this through the practice of mindfulness with breathing which you are working on, then these five hindrances will be swept away and the mind will have mental, will have its, its very special solitude. So through successful development <coughs> of samadhi one can easily be free of these five hindrances. This brings us to <coughs> to upati viveka, <coughs> which is solitude on the spiritual level. Upati means burdens. And so to be free of all burdens when the mind is not burdened or worn down or made heavy by any of the objects of attachment. When the mind is cling, clinging to something, 
when anything is grabbed onto, then it gets carried around by the mind and this become, this is a burden, an unnecessary heaviness and constrictedness. And there's then no solid spiritual solitude. But when one lets go of all attachments, then it's like dropping all burdens. The mind is free of these things and then has spiritual solitude. To, to hold on to things and carry them around in, is called upadana, upatana in the Pali language. This means to carry heavy things, to carry burdens. Upadana, we often translate it attachment or clinging. There are two ways of carrying things. We should understand the difference. The first way is to carry, to hold on to things, to carry things stupidly. This is called upadana. It's to carry things in a way that make them a burden to make problems for us. However, it's possible to hold things, make use of them, or to carry them in a wise way. We can carry them intelligently with mindfulness and understanding. And then they're not heavy. This is called samadana, samadana, which has nothing heavy or burdensome about it. <clears throat> so we have these two ways of, of relating to things. And the, the difference between the two is, is very important. There are four basic ways that we, we turn things into burdens in our ordinary life. And just as we go about the ordinary business and all that of our lives, there are four basic ways that we're grabbing onto things and carrying them around with us. In fact, there are things that we pick up when we're young and carry them with us for the rest of our lives. And we, we bear these burdens for years, often without ever paying attention to the fact. The first kind of, of foolish attachment is to sensuality, especially to sensual pleasures, to dhamma. We're clinging to sensual pleasures. The second is to opinions, views, ideologies, and beliefs clinging to any kind of opinion or ideology or belief, even if it's Buddhism, becomes clinging to views, the second kind. The third is a superstitious kind of grabbing onto things, where we hang on to them superstitiously. And the fourth is to attach to things through the egoistic concept of I and mine. 
These are the four ways of attaching to things. And when we attach, the things become burdens. If we know these four and understand them thoroughly, this would be of tremendous benefit to each of us. Because if we know them, then it's not so difficult to drop them, to be free of them. When something is positive, it invites us to attach to it in a positive way. When something is negative, it invites us to attach to it in a negative way. Don't go thinking that negative things don't have any attachment. In fact, we're clinging very strongly to, to negative things. You can call it detachment if you want. So if something is positive or negative, they both entice us to attach to them. And then we turn these things into burdens. Thus we say that the positive and the negative, clinging to either of them, leads, turns, causes life to bite its owner. If there's any clinging to positive or negative, then life bites its owner. Something positive will stir up a positive kind of ego. Something negative will stir up a negative kind of ego. Either way, life bites its owner, whether in a positive way or a negative way. Whenever something positive or negative enters the mind, then it leads to dukkha, creates conflict, turmoil, torment in the mind. So both positive and negative cause life to bite its owner. If you're successful at practicing vipassana, the insight aspect of meditation, then you will be able to go beyond this problem. If you can successfully develop samadhi so that the mind is very firm, clear, awake, and active, then one can practice successfully the insight aspects of mindfulness with breathing. And one, one is successful in vipassana, the result will be that positive and negative can no longer deceive you. You'll no longer be tricked and made a fool out of positive and negative things. Ordinarily, we think that the positive and the negative are opposites. But in, the, in this case, as we're speaking of today, there's no real difference. Both the positive and the negative stir up ego in, in the same way. They're equal in their ability to stir up attachment and 
and dukkha. They're, they're basically the same in this way. So you may, ordinarily we may think of them as opposites, but in the way they affect the mind, <coughs> they fundamentally operate in the exact same way. Both positive and negative stir up desire, attachment, and lead to dukkha. In our modern world, <clears throat> with all this so-called development, it's very easy to see how much humanity is, is clinging to the positive. Open any magazine or watch a TV program, and you see nothing but a lot of clinging to the positive, to consumer goods, to all kinds of beautiful ideas, the so-called New Age movement is another development of the same thing. Or the tourist industry. All, all aspects of modern life are very, very clearly full of clinging to the positive. People are running around chasing after the positive all over the world. Especially where there's enough money to create the illusion of getting these things. We can see that any place, that this doesn't happen by itself, that wherever there is clinging to the positive, there will be an equal amount of clinging to the negative. And so you can see the businessmen, the politicians, the, the ordinary people who are all caught up in this attachment to positive also have a lot of fear of not getting what they're clinging to or of losing what they're clinging to. So a lot of fear and worry and anger also comes. And so wherever there's clinging to the positive, there will also be clinging to the negative. To whatever degree humanity attaches to the positive, that's how fast we're going to destroy the world. The more we cling to the positive, the more we're also full of negative kinds of clinging, and together these will destroy or are destroying the world faster and faster. Any kind of clinging, whether to the positive or the negative, brings suffering, and this is what's destroying our, our world. All around us, the world is full of things with positive and negative qualities. This is the world that we, that we live in. When our mind through wisdom is no longer caught up in these positive and negative things, then we say that the mind is above or beyond positive and negative. This is, this is our way to survival or to salvation, to, to be above and beyond this power of positive and negative. This is the meaning of being 
of being spiritually spiritually alone where nothing nothing positive or negative can disturb the mind this is what is necessary for our survival the positive leads to a positive sort of ego the negative leads to a negative sort of ego either way there's an ego and when there's an ego the mind gets bit when there's ego the mind is not free is not void and so it can find no no real peace should remember the most important sentence that wherever there is ego there there is no solitude if there is ego in the mind even if we go in go and sit in a cave in the mountains or stay at the charnel grounds or deep in the forest there will be no solitude no matter where we go if there is ego in the mind then there can there cannot be any lasting or real solitude but if the mind is void of ego even if we go and sit in the middle of a theater or stand on a busy street corner the mind will have solitude to get rid of the ego that's in the mind any ego that arises in the mind to get rid of it is to experience solitude immediately one doesn't have to go up into the mountains and live like a hermit or hang around funeral grounds or or anything like that to really to find real solitude what one has to do is to drop ego to get to toss the ego out of the mind and then wherever one is whatever one is doing there immediately is is we wake up solitude or aloneness if you are successful in practicing in developing samadhi which leads to vipassana insight through your practice of mindfulness with breathing if you're successful in this then the whole world will be a place of solitude and peace for you we can look at a few examples of each of these in the old pali scriptures there are listed examples of if one has one can sit here with samadhi if there is genuine samadhi a caravan of a thousand ox carts and if you've ever seen an ox cart they have these big heavy wooden wheels and they squeak and rattle and make all kinds of noise 500 of these can pass and if one has samadhi one just sits there and doesn't hear a thing even if they pass right by one or there's another example where a lightning bolt crashes down right next to one killing a bunch of buffaloes and cattle and if there's sufficiently deep samadhi one doesn't hear a thing these are 
examples of the kind of solitude that can arise from strong samadhi, from a mind that's really firmly collected, very calm mind. Then in terms of insight or vipassana, once the mind is really stable and clear, and then we can see things as they genuinely are, then we no longer see things through the illusion of positive and negative. When we see things directly, then we see them as they are, and then the mind gets out of this trap, this illusion of positive and negative. And when the mind is, can see things in this way, then the positive and the negative have no power over this. This has a special name in the Pali language. It's called Adhammayata, Adhammayata, which means that nothing at all can do anything to the mind. When nothing can cook up the mind, when nothing can produce results in the mind, when nothing can make the mind be like this or like that, when things have no power over the mind, when the mind is in this state of which we can call unconcoctability, when the mind has a dhammayata, nothing can mess with it, nothing can cook it up. This, this is the highest meaning of we wake up. When the mind has this adhammayata, this unconcoctability, then there is perfect solitude. And solitude on this level has, is a synonym for nibbana or nirvana. Now the Buddha talked about adhammayata both directly and indirectly in great detail. But although he spent a lot of time looking into this matter, it hasn't come down in our ordinary vocabularies. When it comes to ordinary people, they never talk about it, they never give any attention to Atamayata. So we need to bring these this into our our everyday vocabularies. We can talk about spiritual equilibrium, unconcoctability, unconditionability. Or there are other words that convey the same relative meaning. We need to bring these into our everyday vocabularies to be talking about these things, paying attention to them in our ordinary lives. We need to get these words into the dictionaries of our various languages. Now I'm sure you've, you've all heard of words like equilibrium or equanimity, but you've probably never heard them on the highest level. There, you've probably never discussed them on a truly spiritual level, which is the mind that's 
totally free of positive and negative. Lots of people talk about balance, but on a relatively low level. One needs to also be, most of all, be interested in spiritual equilibrium that is free from and beyond all positive and negative. In this way, there is genuine solitude. There is true viveka. It's only in this kind of solitude that there is the, the resting place for suffering souls. Whether we wake up or Nibbana, <coughs> neither of them have anything to do with, with death. What they mean is that there is no dukkha. Ultimately, the meaning of both we wake up and dukkha is that the mind is totally free from, or of Nibbana, is that the mind is totally free from all dukkha. So these words don't mean death. They mean a coolness, a peacefulness, where the mind isn't troubled or, or pained by, by anything. We call this quenching, where the mind is quenched. It's not dead. It's just quenched. All the fires are, are put out. If you <clears throat> practice mindfulness with breathing diligently and correctly, you'll be more and more successful. And this will lead to four things. You'll get four very valuable things from this practice. <clears throat> the four are sati, mindfulness, panya, intuitive wisdom, sampachanya, which is wisdom in action, a specific, specifically applied wisdom, and samadhi, the collected mind, which is firm yet active. Through practicing mindfulness with breathing, these are the natural results of a correct practice. And then these are of tremendous benefit in how we live our lives. We have this group of four things. The order in which we list them is flexible. It depends on the situation. In some situations we list them in one way, in other situations in other ways. But generally, we begin with sati. How we list them just depends on how they need to be used. And in ordinary circumstances, it begins with sati. Mindfulness then recollects wisdom, brings wisdom to the situation. That general wisdom that we have developed then is applied to the specific situation, just the wisdom necessary for this, for dealing with this situation. And that is called sampachanya, this special application of wisdom. And then to supply the necessary strength and power, there is samadhi. So these four things work together 
in dealing with all the circumstances of our lives. These are developed through a good practice of mindfulness with breathing. And then once we have these four, they will enable us to live life with, with we wake up. If you <clears throat> are able to be mindful of the breathing, if you can note and track the breathing through every one of the lessons of mindfulness with breathing, the result will be a mindfulness which is highly developed. The meaning of sati is this comes from the the speed of an arrow. In the old days, all they knew of the fastest thing around was arrows. They didn't have guns or electricity or anything. But the meaning is something which is incredibly fast. And sati that is properly developed is then as fast as the fastest electric current or fast as a laser or whatever. If we develop this, then sati is always fast enough to go to wisdom and bring wisdom to the situation that's confronting us. In fact, we have, we all have sati to begin with, but it's just an ordinary level. There's not enough of it, it's too slow. So we need to develop it so that sati mindfulness is sufficient and of the highest speed. And then it will be able to, to serve us in all the experiences of life. Further, <clears throat> Through practicing mindfulness with breathing, <clears throat> one will come to a very deep understanding of Paticca Samupada, or dependent origination. Your instructors have explained this to you <clears throat> so that you have an idea what it's about. <clears throat> the more <clears throat> The more deeply we practice mindfulness with breathing, the more apparent <coughs> dependent origination will be for us. We'll see more and more clearly how dukkha arises and how dukkha is quenched. And this is the essence of wisdom. So understanding dependent origination, this is what, what wisdom is about. And this we will be developing so that then whatever the situation, mindfulness will recollect this wisdom. Mindfulness is like the vehicle of wisdom and it brings wisdom, it transports wisdom to the situation in front of us so that we know how to deal with it in a way that no dukkha will arise. Next we should look at sampachanya or wisdom in action. Wisdom is like medicine in the medicine chest. In our house we have a, a place where we store all kinds of medicines 
and things. There's a, a big variety of them. And when one gets sick, one doesn't go and take all of the medicine in the chest. One needs to choose the appropriate medicine for our ailment. So wisdom is like all the medicine in the chest. Then mindfulness chooses the right, the right medicine and brings it to the situation. This specific cure for what ails us, this is called sampachanya, the specific wisdom that is needed to cope with this situation <coughs> is what we call sampachanya. It's not necessary to bring the whole chest of medicine, just bring that aspect of wisdom, the application of wisdom that will solve the problem. Another way of seeing this is that wisdom is like an arsenal of all kinds of weapons for dealing with any enemy that attacks us. If an enemy attacks us, we need to defend ourselves to drive the enemy away and in some cases kill the enemy. And so we have an arsenal of various weapons. And depending on the enemy, you choose the weapon and the way they're attacking, you choose the weapon that is most appropriate. So this is another metaphor for Sampachanya. Wisdom is the arsenal of various weapons. Wis mindfulness, when attacked, mindfulness will choose the proper weapon. And then the use of that weapon is called the use of that weapon to kill the enemy is called sampachanya. But here, when we use the word enemy, don't think we're talking about people. We're talking about positive and negative, which comes to, to delude us. So now, so now mindfulness goes and gets wisdom, brings it. And this wisdom functions in this the specific wisdom functions <clears throat> for dealing with the situation. The only question is whether there is enough power, whether the mind has enough strength to, to, to deal with the situation and be totally free. Through, which means is a question of whether there is enough samadhi. Samadhi is the, the mind's energy gathered together and focused, which leads to great stability as well as great strength. If we practice mindfulness with breathing, there will be enough samadhi, so that if mindfulness brings wisdom and then there is specifically applied wisdom working, if there's not quite enough strength to do the job, samadhi, more samadhi can kick in in order to do the job totally, completely. So this, this will be developed through, through practicing anapanasati. One should understand that samadhi is like weight. Wisdom is like sharpness. If you take 
some cutting tool like an axe or a knife, you'll notice that not only must it be sharp, it must have weight. If you take a razor blade, which is very sharp, and try to cut down a tree, it will take you a very long time because the razor blade has no weight. To cut something, you need both sharpness, but there has to be weight behind it. Wisdom is like the weight, and samadhi, or, I'm sorry, wisdom is the sharpness, and samadhi provides the weight that provides the work. One should observe the interconnectedness of these four things. If there's no sati, then, mindf then any wisdom we have is a waste. No matter how much we've studied or know how much we've meditated, in real life, if there's no mindfulness, then all of our understanding is useless. Or if there's no samadhi, we can be very wise, but if there's no samadhi, the mind isn't firm and clear, then the wisdom won't have the strength to deal with any problems. And wisdom itself can't develop without mindfulness, without samadhi. So all of these are interconnected. To function, we need all four together. Just to have two or three isn't enough. We must develop all four of them and develop them in a way where they function as a team, as a unit. And so we ask that when you're over at the, the center across the road, that you do everything within your ability to practice mindfulness with breathing, diligently, with joy, and successfully, so that you can build up, store up these, these four things so that you can develop them, strengthen them, in order that you have more and more of these four. You need to develop them and have them to the degree that we can call your life mates. Um, in real life, we, we tend to depend on our parents, our lovers, our husbands and wives, our friends, our political leaders, our bosses. But in the end, none of these other people can really save us. They can help us on certain worldly levels. But when it comes to the real important issues of life, none of these can really help us. So these various even our husbands and wives, in the end, cannot save us. What can save us are these, when we've strengthened mindfulness, wisdom, wisdom in action, and samadhi. When these four are sufficiently strong and working as a unit, then these become our, our life mate, our partners in life and enable us to be free of all, of all dukkha. And so through them, 
through developing them, this leads to more and more we wake up until solitude becomes Nibbana, the perfect freedom, peace, and coolness of mind. We can call them life mates or partners in life, if we like. Or another word we can, we can also call them bodyguards. If you have these four bodyguards, there won't, you'll be totally free of all dangers. There won't be anything that can disturb you or harm you if you have these four bodyguards, mindfulness, wisdom, specifically applied wisdom, and samadhi, the collected, concentrated mind. With these four bodyguards, we wake up becomes perfect. Nothing is disturbing the mind. The mind is totally at peace. When you have these four as your bodyguards, then nothing can bite you. The positive can't bite you. The negative can't bite you. Nothing will be biting all the things in your life, none of them will bite your, will bite you. None of them will bite their owners. This is, this is the highest thing there is in life, where nothing is biting its owner, where life, to live life without life turning on its owner. This this is the result of having these four bodyguards. You can see for yourself that we wake up or solitude also means freedom. It means independence. That through viveka, the mind is emancipated from all the things that enslave it, all the things that bind it, all the things that harm it. So in Viveka there is also perfect, perfect freedom. When, this, when there is total Viveka, then there is perfect freedom. And this is the perfection of humanity. To be a, this is to be a perfected human being, or a, an arahant, an arahant, the highest, the highest development of, of human life. So in viveka, in solitude, there is freedom. At our center, your instructors began with explaining to you dependent origination or paticca samupada. This is, at least at first, a, the basic theory or perspective we need in order to meditate correctly. At first we can understand dependent origination theoretically, but, don't, but there isn't much we can do about it. But then through practicing mindfulness with breathing, we develop mindfulness, wisdoms, applied wisdom, 
and samadhi so that more and more we can control the flow of dependent origination. And eventually we can master dependent origination so that it only arises if we want it to. Dependent origination is the conditioned arising of suffering, of dukkha. Once we can control that flow, then we can prevent the arising of suffering. The arising of dukkha is called dependent origination. The quenching of dukkha is called dependent quenching or paticca nirota. At first, we'll understand this theoretically, but as we develop mindfulness with breathing, we'll have, we'll have more and more ability to control the flow of dependent origination and quench dukkha. One last thing that we need to mention is that it's necessary to repeat all of this over and over again. It's not enough just to walk into a 10-day course and then walk away and forget everything. That won't get us very far. The Buddha pointed out over and over again that it's necessary to just keep going through this, to keep practicing over and over again so that we go deeper and deeper and deeper until we're finally successful. Many of us would just practice a little bit, get a few small results, be satisfied with that, and then drop it. And that won't really lead us very far. So it's necessary to repeat the study. We study and learn about dependent origination. We keep going through it. Each of the, the various links of dependent origination, contact leads to feeling, to desire, to craving. To go through this over and over again so that we understand it more and more deeply and more detail. And then in practice, to keep repeating our practice of mindfulness with breathing. All the various lessons to go through them over and over again until mindfulness, wisdom, and samadhi are perfected. Unless we're able to totally eliminate attachment, we need to keep repeating these over and over again. In terms of study, st dependent origination, in terms of practice, mindfulness with breathing. Now, when studying and practicing these things, you must do so scientifically. It's not enough just to believe what is being said, for whether because you like to believe things or because it's presented logically or for whatever reason, belief isn't enough. This whole thing has to be approached very scientifically to investigate it thoroughly so you understand exactly what is meant and intended and then to practice it, not with blind faith but with an investigating mind, to practice it until one is totally successful. Instead of clinging at minor results, to keep going deeper and deeper until we're completely successful. This scientific approach is necessary to just believe or accept 
will get us, will not get us very far. And then from now on, you will be able to manage life instead of life managing, managing you. If we really apply ourselves to this, we'll be able to manage our own lives. We'll be able to run our own lives rather than have life run us. So please give it your best and we wish you the, the highest success in this very important endeavor. Finally, allow us to thank you for being very good and patient listeners and we hope that you're equally as determined and patient in practicing both here and after you leave. So thank you and we wish you the, the greatest success.